0: Covenant Podcast exists to equip listeners with theological content from a 1689 Baptist perspective.
1: We pray you find this resource edifying, faithful to Scripture, and Christ exalting. Now, let's get started.
0: Welcome to The Covenant Podcast. Jimmy Johnson here with my co-host Austin McCormick, and we have the privilege of having Dr. James Renahan on with us again. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Renahan.
2: Greetings, brothers. Thank you very much for inviting me to be with you again.
0: And we're going to be discussing Baptist associationalism. So we we find this subject introduced to us in the London Baptist Second London Baptist Confession of Faith, and particularly in par- or Chapter Twenty Six, Paragraphs Fourteen through Fifteen. So we'll just start out by asking you, Doctor Renhan, what do Paragraphs Fourteen and Fifteen confess? And then if if there's more questions to be asked after you answer that, then we'll, we'll go ahead and get into that.
2: Yeah. Um, they actually confess something that was present all the way back in the First London Confession of 1644, and that is a doctrine that uh, independent churches uh, should be working to support each other, to cooperate together on various projects. Um, it has come to be known as associationalism. Um, that wasn't necessarily uh, a term that would have been used in 1644 It just hadn't developed yet but by the time you get to the 1650s you have Baptist associations and then um, this becomes a regular practice among them so that when the confession is written first in 1677 uh, it incorporates these two paragraphs at the end of its chapter on the church that speak to the matter of associations and how churches are to work together.
0: Mm. And in your, your book, Edification and Beauty, um, the final chapter, I believe, you you talk at length about the meaning of the term communion, and, and I believe it's in paragraph 14 is where we find it. Um, can you Can you just in brief or in summary tell us what the term communion means and how it it kind of supports this idea of associations.
2: Yeah, um, it's in both paragraphs 14 and 15. Um, You know, language changes over time. And we're talking about here a document that is uh, coming up on its 350th uh, anniversary. Um, And so we, we must not import our own modern, contemporary understandings of particular terms into an ancient document. We have to look at, how the, the, the churches who adopted that document would have viewed that word. And so I spent a lot of time working through the, the sense that was given to communion in the 17th century. And it was not a word that simply meant um, uh, fellowship in the way that we mean fellowship today, where churches pray for each other and support each other, but it had a very specific sense of um, formality. Um, joining together uh, in some kind of formal organization um, in which there's mutual recognition and mutual support. Um, And so it's a functional equivalent of the term association. Um, That's obvious not just from the way that the word was used in the 17th century, but also even within the text of paragraphs 14 and 15 themselves, um, the need for messengers, you only have messengers that are sent to association meetings, um, etc. So uh, that, that whole chapter was intended to work through uh, the, the sense, the way that the word was used by in, in their contemporary circumstance and to argue that that's exactly what they mean in 14 and 15. They mean associations of churches joined together in a formal sense um, to, for mutual support, encouragement, help um protection etc
0: um related to that last part you there or part you mentioned there about some of the functions of them the help the benefit so so what were associations meant to do um and and what was the end and the goal of forming these associations
2: yeah um That's a good question because it can be answered in two ways. They were intended to be both positive and negative helps to churches. Negative sounds bad, but I don't mean it that way. Uh, Positive help, let me give you an illustration. Um, There were a lot of churches in the 17th century, um, small churches out in the country who were not able to support their pastors. And so their pastors had to be blacksmiths or farmers or, you know, hold some kind of Job just to keep the family at a subsistence level. And the, the more wealthy churches in London, and wealthy is a relative term there, churches that had some money, um, recognized that they had an obligation to help these smaller churches. And so they, they used the, uh, the association that they had as a means to develop what came to be known and still exists as the Particular Baptist Fund, where monies were collected from churches Uh, A board was appointed and the board was given the responsibility of distributing the funds that were collected to these smaller churches. So there you you have a very positive step that they took to try to help um, others in a tangible way by providing funds to support pastors. Um, You you also saw them do things like uh, if a pastor's barn burned down, they would organize uh, uh, men to come and help rebuild the barn, things like that. When I said negative, what I meant was to help solve problems in churches, um, not in, a, in an Episcopalian or a, or a Presbyterian way in which there's a higher um, judica- judicatory that has the right to uh, examine the actions of a church and then change or impose its decisions upon that church, but rather as a means of appeal by which those who believe that they have been wronged can um, appeal to someone outside the church and ask for help. Now, the the way that that was structured was that even even in that appeal, the the body that receives the appeal has no right to impose its decisions upon uh, the other church, but it can certainly weigh in and say this person has been wronged, something bad has happened, um, and perhaps that means that the uh, the church that has um, offended in that way has to be um, cut off from the association. It has to be marked out as a dangerous place or individuals with it have to be um, recognized to have sinned in a certain way. So it it was, um, this, this is the point in paragraph 15 um, in cases of difficulties or differences in point of doctrine or administration, um, either within the churches in general or any one church or any member or members of the church are injured. Um, It it was a means by which they could address a variety of problems like this and provide some kind of solution. Well, thank you for
1: that. And as we move on to uh, the next part of this conversation, we want to ask you, what was the scriptural basis for associations given by our forefathers?
2: Yeah. You know, it's interesting. Um, the, the basis for associations goes all the way back into, um, as I said, the 1640s, but it was also a characteristic of the, the congregational churches. So you find Thomas Goodwin and John Owen and and Jeremiah Burroughs and those men advocating some kind of cooperative arrangement in a formal sense between churches. And uh, it may surprise people to know that... Um, they, they argued for this on the basis of general revelation and special revelation, or the light of nature, Christian prudence, and what the Word of God says. And so when, when you look at their justifications, they frequently will begin in one way or another by saying, as we look at the world around us, we see that God has ordered it in such a way where Uh, mutual help and assistance is of benefit in society in general and in a variety of relationships in society. And that principle then can apply to churches. And then having established from general revelation that this is part and parcel of what God intends for people in the world that he has given to us, they would go to texts like Acts chapter 15, where you have the the church in Antioch faced with a real crisis over the, the definition of the gospel Um, and then appealing for help ultimately to Jerusalem. But in the fact that Paul and Barnabas traveled from Antioch to Jerusalem several days and visited congregations on the way, uh, it's very possible that representatives from those other congregations along the way accompanied Paul and Barnabas to Jerusalem. Now, that's not certain, but it's possible. Yet at least two churches, Antioch and Jerusalem represented. Then they would go to 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, and see there that um, the the relief effort that is organized by Paul for on, on behalf of the Jerusalem church involves a variety of churches in Macedonia. And there is language, for example, of the brother who was chosen or appointed by the churches. Um, they would go there and say, see, here's evidence that the apostles drew the churches together and... Um, through that um, that action on the part of Paul as an apostle, those churches made formal decisions to choose one man and send him as a representative to carry the, the purse on the way to Jerusalem and deliver this, this um, relief, uh, the funds of relief to the saints in Jerusalem. So they would go to, to passages like that and draw out based upon first general revelation and then illustrations in special revelation, um, a basis for this working together.
1: And so, um, what are some common objections to just forming formal associations and how would you respond to these objections?
2: Well, um, I think some of the objections, the, perhaps there are two, that immediately come to mind. One of them is um, a, a false kind of biblicism that people fall into that say, if there isn't an explicit statement in Scripture that says go and form associations of churches, that you can't do it. Um, that's that's a problem, because when that same principle is applied in other areas, it can lead to chaos. Let me, let me give you an example. Yesterday, I was reading... A paper that was published uh, a year or so ago, a year or so ago, about uh, Matthew Caffin, who was a leader among the General Baptists and who um, basically became a Unitarian. There's a lot more to the story than that, but this paper was arguing that Caffin um, was not novel uh, among General Baptists, but that Caffin was simply following a tradition that if something is not explicitly stated in the Word of God, it is not a requirement to be believed, particularly the Trinity. And this author um, cited uh, what shocked me, but I I guess as I thought about it, it didn't surprise me. He cited a passage from a very famous Baptist theologian of the late 20th century who said that uh, there is no explicit passage in the Bible particularly in the New Testament that teaches the doctrine of the Trinity, uh, the doctrine of the Trinity is really a result of controversies in the 3rd and 4th centuries finally defined in the Nicene Creed. And so in that sense, um, a a, a willingness to have doubts or hesitancy about confessing the doctrine of the Trinity or even stating that the doctrine of the Trinity is a necessary doctrine for Christian belief is to go beyond what the Word of God requires of us. That's the same exact principle that is used by some to reject the notion of associations. And it's biblicism, and biblicism is just plain bad. Uh, We don't have to have an explicit text to support doctrines or practices. What we do is we look to the Word of God and we draw out the sense of the Word of God as it is contained generally. I would argue that the doctrine of the Trinity is a necessity. And the denial of the doctrine of the Trinity is, in fact, an indicator that a person has no true faith in Jesus Christ, that, that he is outside of the pale of Christian orthodoxy. Um, and, I, and I'm glad to say that even though I can't point to an explicit text, although I think there are a lot of texts that, that obviously teach the doctrine of the Trinity, and if you know something about Nicene Christianity, you know that the, the Nicene Creed is formulated as a result of careful study, exegetical study of the Word of God. I, w- I would argue in the same way, not that associationalism is on the level of the doctrine of the Trinity. I don't mean to in- imply that at all, but its justification can come from the true revelation that God gives to us in ge- in, in creation. General revelation is true. The problem with it is that um, our sinful hearts don't always read it in the right way. But the principle that we see in general revelation of um, uh, Organizations working together is a or, or individuals even working together is a true one. Look, where I live, I, I have a house homeowners association and uh, they work on behalf of all of the homes in this area to um, take care of um, the entry to the, the neighborhood and lights. And when somebody car hits a street light or something, they they repair it. It's not a very expensive one, but it's a homeowners association. That's what it is. Well, general revelation teaches us that, special revelation gives us examples of churches working together. Um, that, that's, um, you know, that's how I would respond to objections and um, say, brother, you, you need to r- really rethink how you formulate Christian theology in practice. Um, your, your objection may be valid. I, I won't deny that there's a possibility that the objection is valid, but the basis upon which you, you make the objection is faulty.
0: Um, transitioning, uh, you added together a, a work called Faith and Life for Baptists in which the, the documents of the early London Association is, are, are placed. And you can read the summaries and things like that. And even in reading that, you can see that there are challenges that arose very early to this practice of associationalism. So the next question is, what are some challenges that come with forming and maintaining formal associations?
2: Yeah, that's a good question. Um, the, the biggest challenge is our sinful hearts, to be really honest. And the, the same things that happen in um, autonomous churches that keep themselves utterly independent are the same things that can happen in associations. You can have a dominant personality and that dominant personality wants to impose his will and direct things in his will. It was, it's really interesting. A couple of days ago, earlier this week, I had a a visit with um, a man I had never met before um, who is involved in uh, a Christian work. Several hours away, I drove over there to meet with him. Had a really wonderful uh, day, conversation, encouragement. And I was asking him about the churches that he's involved in and how they came to be and and um, something of the history of his, his group of churches, a group of Baptists. And he was telling me that they began uh, really because there was one individual in a, in a larger group that they had been involved with but there was one individual who became dominant, and in his dominance was making demands that uh, many of the the churches were not willing to accede to. And so, as a result, there was a separation that came. Those who followed the the big man stayed in one group, and those who were really concerned about the way that he was dominating and leading that that group of churches um, formed another group. Uh, that was that was a kind of a striking example of how even in associations of churches, you have one man who has strong gifts, strong abilities, um, who is looked to by many and gathers them together under his wings, and he can dominate. That That's a bad thing. Um, another difficulty that can arise is the failure to... Um, to think, uh, uh, to, to practice an association in terms of churches rather than individuals. Um, I think it, it's too easy. Well, l- l- let me put it this way. It, it's nearly impossible for every church and all of the members of the church to come together into an association. So that let's say you had 10 churches in the association and each church has 100 members. Uh, to bring a thousand people together to draw conclusions is is a difficulty. And so churches historically have sent messengers to represent them. But it's easy for that sending of messengers to morph into decisions that are made by the messengers rather than genuine decisions on behalf of churches. because what 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 we want is an association of churches. Not an association of ministers or of the messengers of the churches. And so you 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 have to work very hard to ensure that even that body of representatives, messengers, delegates, whatever they happen to be called, don't, in a sense, become like a presbytery to the association, but rather that they genuinely represent the will of the churches who send them as messengers to the association. That's a a real challenge to overcome, but it's one that needs to be overcome. I I think that when I was in Southern California and there was an association of churches there, in relatively close geographic proximity, this was much easier to accomplish. And the reason is that four times every year, uh, the churches got together for a common worship service. And that worship service was um, tied very closely to the, uh, the, the meeting of the representatives. Typically, that would be held on Wednesday, and then the worship service would be held on the Lord's Day after. And so there was a, a genuine sense of camaraderie, brotherhood among the members of the churches. They got to know each other. And uh, so that when an action of the association was taken, it really was an action of the churches of the association, because of that closeness. And and I think that that's, that's a real benefit. Associations need to work hard to bring the people of the churches into some kind of participatory awareness of what's going on in the life of the association, and not simply turn it into a decision-making body that rests at the, the top level.
1: So we've talked about some challenges that Come with forming and maintaining formal associations and you uh, just kind of alluded to one benefit there at the end. What other benefits can you think of uh, for forming and maintaining formal associations?
2: Yeah. Um, let me go back to what I said earlier. I think that the benefits are many, but the benefits are also situational. Um, you know, it depends on where you are, and what the needs are in any particular circumstance. Um, I I know of one benefit that can always be brought is help that is given to a church. And I've seen that in very positive ways where um, a, a pastor of a church for one reason or another leaves or retires or is unable to continue. And the other churches, in the association band together to ensure that that one church has a continuing ministry. So they send men on a regular basis to that church to be able to to preach to them. And that helps the church through its transitional period uh, in which it's seeking to call someone else to come to the preaching ministry in that church. That's a great benefit. And we saw that in Southern California. Um, I, I really appreciated the fact that it was the associated churches who took a responsibility to help one of the other churches that was without a pastor to continue and that brought them through that period of time. They were able to call a man, and he's been there for, for a long time now, and it has been a blessing to them. Another way, another very positive way, situational, that associations can help churches is to step in if there is an unusual financial need. Um, you know, in again, let me go back to Southern California. There was a, an offering that was taken at each of the um, the quarterly gatherings of the churches. And that money was held in reserve in case there were any needs that might appear. So one of the churches faced um, a very real need in their building that was immediate. The association was able to step in and give a large amount of money to that church without the expectation of repayment um, in order that that church would be able to uh, improve its meeting place and continue to, to meet as a church and the Lord blessed them. Now, those are situational, but but those are helpful. You can imagine um, in, in uh, a, a variety of cultures and in a variety of places around the world, maybe it's in a rural area, maybe it's in a metropolitan area, that the needs would be different. But still, an association, if it's functioning properly, it, when it becomes aware of those needs, can take action to step in and to help provide for those needs, whatever they might be. Um, So I think that that's that's a real benefit, and that's a benefit that can be localized and contextualized. Um, Some of them can be universal. Look, at you know, in the 17th century, if a pastor's barn burned down, that could happen anywhere in the country, and the the churches can can come to their assistance. Um, The same with the need for pastoral supply or the need for... um, finances to help when uh, a hurricane strikes and a, and a building is damaged, or um, there's some, maybe a small fire in the church building, or, you know, something like that. Those things uh, can be a benefit. Likewise, I think that there is a benefit in terms of um, holding each other accountable for doctrinal commitments. Um, you know, one, one of the things that church history teaches us is that men and churches tend to move away from what they originally practice and confess. We see that in the New Testament. How many times do the epistles have to call churches back either to the gospel, Galatians, Colossians, or to proper practice, Corinthians? Um, If that happens in New Testament churches with the apostles still living, We shouldn't be surprised that it happens um, in our own churches. And an association, if it's functioning properly, can help to call churches back to uh, the purity of faith or the purity of practice. When they learn that uh, Church A has a man in membership who is involved with his stepmother, um, they can take that apostolic function, not that they're apostles or have that kind of authority. But rather, they can say, wait a minute, what is your church doing? Why are you allowing this? Or if a church has uh, suddenly decided that um, there's an element of works that need to be incorporated into the doctrine of justification, the churches in the association can say, wait a minute, you're compromising the gospel. Uh, You're doing what happened in Antioch. Let's uh, hold your feet to the fire, and let's bring this to the, the assembled churches, and Help you to see that you have failed in your doctrine of justification by faith alone. So those are two examples, positive and and I use the word negative. I don't like that word, but it's to uh, to help recover the negative problems that exist elsewhere.
0: We have been discussing Baptist associationalism, so we'll we'll end on this question. Dr. Renahan, do you have any final encouragements for our listeners as it relates to Baptist associationalism or ecclesiology in general?
2: You know, um, I'm in the middle, actually right at the beginning of teaching my Doctrine of the Church class. I was lecturing yesterday on it. And uh, I begin that course with a lengthy lecture on the question, does the New Testament um, actually have an ecclesiology? And you'd be surprised how many people say, no, it doesn't, Um, especially today. Um, uh, Roman Catholics say yes, because they base their ecclesiology on uh, the supposed appointment of Peter as the first pope. Believe it or not, they they try to base their ecclesiology in the New Testament. Um, Presbyterians believe that the New Testament teaches their polity, Episcopalians argue that the second century gives evidence of their uh, bishop, what they call the three office view, bishop, presbyter, and deacon. And they say, if that was closest to the New Testament, then it's probably what was practiced in the New Testament. So they're not quite as careful about basing their practice in the New Testament. But when you get to the, the 20th century and you talk about evangelicalism, there are many men, even good men, who say it doesn't matter. Um, use whatever is best, what works for you. I want to argue that we as Baptists need to recover the fact that the New Testament does have an ecclesiology, and that we need to seek to insist on that ecclesiology. Uh, one of the uh, one of the great quotations from the early Puritan era, as they are struggling with coming out of an Episcopalian system and trying to sort out. Uh, a system of ecclesiology that that reflects what the New Testament teaches, they turned to the lordship of Christ, and they um, they said, "Would would Christ, as Lord, as King, create a kingdom, be Lord over a country, and then go away and leave it to govern itself? Wouldn't He provide to it?" that which is necessary for it to be governed. I, I think that that's a great perspective to take, and we need to take that. So ecclesiology uh, is not a, a, um, a subsidiary issue. It's not the most important. We love our Presbyterian brothers. We love um, Episcopalians who profess the faith of Christ. We, we love them. We recognize them as true believers in Christ. But at the same time, we need to insist upon a proper New Testament ecclesiology. We need to think through what a church is, how the church is to function, um, how it relates to other churches, how it governs itself, how the universal church is governed by Christ as head and his apostles and prophets that are given to us. Um, I, I, I I think that your desire to talk about this today, it opens a window on the importance of thinking through carefully what ecclesiology is as we find it in the New Testament. Um, we It's an uphill battle because I almost think, I can't give you statistics for this, but I almost think that the majority of Christian believers today would say, ah, it doesn't matter. It doesn't make any difference. If we want to have a, a church that's run on a business model and we want a board of directors uh, who will handle the church in that way. That's what we should do. And I've met men who who argue like that. Uh, if it's a view that just says, you know, in our culture, this is what would work. Let's do it this way. I, I want to say, brother, you need to think about the New Testament and you need to think about the importance of ecclesiology and you need to work through them. So I, I think that you've opened a window or, or a door on an important topic that that needs to be pursued and that with grace and kindness, we need to insist on with, uh, with our brothers and sisters in Christ who maybe don't see the importance of ecclesiology in the way that they ought.
1: Well, uh, drawing off of your window or door metaphor, we thank you for being the one to come and, and speak on this opportunity. Uh, you have written uh, to it and you've spoken to it. So thank you very much for uh, taking your time to come and talk about Baptist associationalism with us.
2: My pleasure. Thank you for inviting me.
1: And uh, as you know, our listeners, if you've listened with our previous episode, uh, Dr. James Renahan is the president of IRBS Theological Seminary and also serves as the professor of historical theology there. So we will uh, link to IRBS in the show notes. We hope that this episode has been edifying to you and uh, helpful as you think through Baptist ecclesiology. And we just want to wish you grace and peace.